Hello and welcome to this podcast series brought to you by Connect Health Tech. Connect Health Tech is Cambridge University's Enterprise Zone, the gateway into the university's life sciences and health tech community for collaborators, companies and investors. We work to join the dots between medicine and technology across the Cambridge ecosystem and beyond by strengthening interdisciplinary bridges between academia, industry and healthcare, we facilitate real-world possibilities, transforming innovative ideas into tangible outcomes that benefit society. In our podcast series, Joining the Dots, we explore and discuss a diverse range of themes and topics of interest, including developing interdisciplinary collaborations, finding the right partner, and impactful business support for entrepreneurs. I'm Paula Rogers-Brown, Business Community Manager for Connect Health Tech, and in this episode of Joining the Dots, we explore commercialising research with a focus on the NHS and key factors for innovation adoption. Joining me today is Dr Louise Jopling, Commercial Director at the Eastern Academic Health Science Network, where she leads the commercial team to develop partnerships and support innovators to refine their business models and value propositions to ensure commercial sustainability. Louise holds a PhD in immunology from Imperial College London and has a background in drug discovery, development and commercialisation within academia, biotech and pharmaceutical organisations. Louise is a member of the British Society for Immunology and a mentor on a number of accelerator programmes. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am really, really looking forward to our conversation. So let's start with um, your career. How did you start your journey? Oh, I could take you all the way back to my school days when I wanted to be a vet. But uh, anyway, it was far too competitive. Um, And anyway, I my first degree was in in zoology so animal biology and I was fascinated by parasites of all things and that then captured yeah I was fascinated by how parasites could evade the immune system and live within their host Um, and so that then took me on my immunology journey it all felt very complicated at the time and then I think once I once I graduated from Aberdeen University I then started working putting that into practice And I was working at the University of Edinburgh in the HIV centre back in the mid 90s. And I'd avoided, tried to avoid molecular biology back in those days. But I ended up being a molecular immunologist as we were profiling T cell phenotypes of of HIV, um, the cohort we were following in Edinburgh. But anyway, that's that's sort of a start to why I'm such an immunology geek. Um, I then, at the time, I was following a group of receptors that were HIV cofactors, um, the chemokine receptors, and then that followed, or I followed them throughout the rest of my research career, really. And I did my PhD in that area in, in asthma, Imperial, went out and did a postdoc at Harvard following the receptor I'd been working on in my PhD. And then I always thought it was going to be a diehard academic, actually, and that that was probably my first lesson to sort of never say never, um, because I went on to, at the time, um, what was called the dark side, which was biotech, um, back in the UK when I returned. So I started working on the Grant Park site in Cambridge for Celtech, which at the time was Britain's largest biotech. Um, so that was in 2002. And six years, I was a pharmacologist, so we were profiling our small molecules for inflammatory research in in vivo models. 
And after that, so I was leading the psoriasis research strategy as well within UCB. Um, sorry, I should say partway through the six years, we were acquired by UCB, by the Belgians. Um, so again, that was another sort of, I guess, career insight for me that just don't assume, just because you built your five-year plan, don't assume that things are going to stay constant. The, the sands are always shifting. So I was not just leading a team of researchers, but um, the research strategy for psoriasis. We were just preparing for sertilizumab pegol or Simsia to go into phase three psoriasis trials back then. And at the time, I was also research. I've got somebody in the team researching Th17 cell biology, which was all very much coming to the the fore of immunology uh, scientific literature. I would like to say that my next career move, when I moved to Janssen, the pharmaceutical arm of J&J, that it was all part of my grand plan. But I would be an absolute liar if I said that. Um, basically, UCB announced the closure of the Grand Park site. I was one of the very few lucky ones to be offered relocation to UCB in Slough. Uh, but I also thought, well, let's see what else is out there. I think human nature, if UCB hadn't have pulled the rug from under us, I'd still be there now, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I would have perhaps limited the experiences I've had in the last sort of 15 years or so. And so in 2008, I moved on to the commercial side of large pharma. So I was in I was the um, product and therapy area expert covering the whole of the UK for a new product in psoriasis. So again, my background, what I'd been doing at UCB, you could script it as if it was all the plan, but it wasn't. It was pure serendipity, timing, all of that. It could have gone oh so wrong. And yeah, so I moved away from the bench and I was traveling loads, obviously covering the whole of the UK. It was one of the most well, informative roles I've ever had. We were communicating, so dermatologists that prescribed biologic therapies, um, so it was used to Kinumab or the product is Stellara, to help them understand the benefit risk profile of, of this drug um, compared to other biologic therapies for their moderate severe, severe psoriasis patients. And now the product has gone on to be a blockbuster. It's got all sorts of line indications. But anyway, so I was at J&J or Janssen for 11 years in five years in medical affairs. So that was both the UK and Europe, Middle East and Africa in the immunology therapy area. Again, couldn't couldn't get away from immunology and it couldn't get away from me. Then about 2012, the geeky scientist in me was was wanting to get out. And at the time, J&J were announcing the opening of their innovation centres globally. And one was going to be situated in London, covering the EMEA region. And it was very much about partnering with external communities in, in your uh, geography, whether that was biotech, acad academia, to really... Um, build an external pipeline that supported our internal discovery and development activities. And so we were really empowered and enabled to go out and explore real blue sky science that we wouldn't necessarily have had internally to produce partnerships that could lead to future therapeutics, diagnostics, etc. moving forward. 
so yeah anything from early discovery through to clinical proof of concept so it was an absolute pinch yourself kind of job you know the easiest thing would have been to stay still be there today rather like back in my UCB days but I also felt you know I'd been leading that for about five six years the immunology therapy area and it just felt that for me as an individual and and also for the innovation team in London that they probably needed some fresh blood I felt that actually I could apply um, my capabilities in my current role I didn't know anything about academic health science networks I could barely get the acronym in the right order. And I could see how the impact I could have for the East of England in the commercial role. I mean, our, our, you know, unique ecosystem, but also how I could apply everything I'd learned in my career to um, the role to bring innovation to patients, of which I am a patient in this region myself. So, of course, I want to, to enable that. But I also felt that most of the innovation we were going to be trying to support the the NHS to to adopt would be devices, pathway transformation, lots of digital. And those were areas that hadn't really had a huge amount of direct experience of. But I knew I could turn my hand to it and it would bolt on some incredible skills for me as an individual. So... And I've been here just about three and a half years now. And just listening to you there, Lou, um, describe your journey um, and that never say never and being open to serendipity and whatever's around the corner. And I've talked about this in, in, in previous podcasts as well. It's never a linear journey, no matter how much of your five year grand plan um, you, you might have set out. It, it really is being open being an open book to those opportunities but you're still bringing along with you as you've said you still brought along that immunology the whole way through your career journey to date so nothing's been lost and nothing's been wasted um which is i think a fantastic testament so that was brilliant to bring us right up to date to where you are at the eastern academic health science networks what does an average day look like now for you lou Oh, goodness. Um, Well, today, for example, this week, um, I'm focusing on supporting a couple of SMEs for quite a significant bid. Quite significant means tens of millions that we are hoping to bring into this region to enable medtech manufacturing to happen at scale for SMEs. So fully ISO accredited for medical device um, manufacture in our region rather than SMEs having to piecemeal go out to Taiwan, to China, perhaps losing some of their financial clout within those agreements and or their own IP. So that is just something that I've come back from um, a couple of weeks leave and it's rolled the sleeves up to get those bids in and that's in combination with the combined authority as well as um, national government funding. So we as a as a team have built a variety of resources, toolkits, we mentor, we advise, we've got a big network so we can put people in contact with one another. 
to help address any of those gaps that they might have. We like to think we are that critical friend. So we're not just going to say, yeah, yeah, that will all be fine. You know, you go, you carry on on your path. We will tell you the hard truths that 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 will not fly because the last thing I'm going to do is put Innovator X in front of NHS stakeholder Y if it's not ready, because I lose credibility with both of those parties. And our role really is to be able to help everybody translate their own where they're coming from. And um, we're not trying to push things into the system, but we want to create that push and pull between yeah. the NHS and, and the um, social care system as well. So tell me a little bit more about the um, National Academic Health Science Network and how the Eastern Hub fits into that, because there are more sure. than one of you. So yes. what, what's, well, how does it all fit together? Yeah, so there are 15 AHSNs across England. And why it's across England? Because we are funded by NHS England and the Office for Life Sciences. And I tend to describe our two core objectives. The first is to support the acceleration, uptake and adoption of innovation within the NHS. So we are the only NHS funded organisation. The NHS pay us to do that, to help them be better at taking up innovation. And then our second objective is to create economic growth for our region. And how I also look at that is almost like two sides of the coin. So the first is supporting and helping our UK SMEs to scale nationally, but also internationally. Mm. And that piece really you know, resonated with me within the first couple of months of joining this organisation because Cambridge... At any given day of the week, there was another international or is today another international delegation flying in to try and absorb some of the Cambridge secret sauce. So I got to make lots of friends across all, all continents and time zones, etc. And now what that enables us to do is where particular geography says, what, it, what UK innovations have you got to support healthy ageing? We can profile those and we can do that over teams. We don't have to fly to Shanghai, to Alabama or wherever we might need to go. That's really, really powerful. I think the other part as well, and we just had some very recent success that I mentioned the Bradfield Centre earlier, but is to support innovators that are from outside of the UK. I've always said if they have an innovation that fulfills a value proposition for our region's NHS. I want to know about it. I don't care where where you are geographically situated. We have our recent success, and that's been, again been in partnership with the Cambridge and Peterborough Combined Authority on one of their growth works competitions or, or challenges around July last year. We're profiling, I think, between 10 and 15 non-UK companies that were all wanting to land within the Cambridgeshire region, set up their UK operations. And one of those, a company called Quibim, who have a very nice digital AI technology for body imaging, 
uh, whole body imaging actually, but um, focusing on particular conditions in, in their first instance, they themselves have just been approved to set up their UK operations in our county and will be based out of the Bradfield Centre. So this is a Spanish company and they will be creating new jobs, probably about nine or ten jobs over the next three years, we anticipate. But that's been, you know, this has taken time for, for us as a team to, and it wasn't just Eastern AHSN, it was all of the stakeholders within our ecosystem. So again, it's that inward and outward looking perspective to, to support business, finance, but primarily the patients within our NHS. That's a lovely, lovely story to, to share there. Thank you for that one, Lou, to, of that collaboration, bringing together the key stakeholders from industry, the, the, the local authority, academia, and bringing that all together, this business support with the Bradfield Centre to yeah, bring that Spanish company and their tech to the fore to get it into the ecosystem. It's really, really lovely to hear how that's going now. What do you think are the key components needed to aid homegrown startups in becoming high growth SMEs that then scale up? So, for example, that Spanish company, what is it they're going to need? Yeah, so I, th I think there's a few components. Obviously, you know, Funding and investment is going to be right at the forefront. You know, you hear it all of all of the time. I think the other piece is the talent. You know, whatever industry anybody's in at the moment, people are leaving. You know, it, it's a very it's not just competitive. It's you it's know, right. it's off the scale. And I think it's not just about getting sort of bums on seats or scientists at the bench. It is about the appropriate C-suite level of experience or expertise, because, again, we've we've supported a number of companies through what we call our Scale Up Academy. And that's in partnership with a Cambridge based company called Triple Chasm Company. And this is to help SMEs go from early adopter customers to overcoming that that third chasm of wide scale commercialization and who your customers are and, and really digging deep into what their business model should be and often what we find is that companies that go through that that whole process that diagnostic process when they look to here's where we are today here's where we want to be in 12 18 24 months time often it's maybe one or two of those current c-suite executives will not be those people that will be in post or certainly should not be those people that should be in post in 12, 18, 24 months time. Some people can take that, you know, and, and realise or they want to be that serial startup person. Um, I think others, it's their baby, but actually have they got the right skills and is that the right thing for the company? So some those can be very difficult conversations and that's something we we don't necessarily get involved in that's for the for the company to sort out but I definitely think there's a, a need for more experienced individuals in this cluster I think there's a lot of experienced individuals but I think SMEs gravitate to those same people and there's only so much bandwidth that they have to be able to be a NED, a CEO, etc. 
I think COVID itself showed how just how incredibly fragile supply chains were and whether it was for manufacturing PPE, you know, in the, the little cottage industries that popped up as well as those wider providers or larger scale providers. But I think now what we need to as a, as a country and this region is a, is a leader in um, should be around manufacture or building those capabilities to have a much more um, end to end supply chain. Let's just expand a little on that, on what you see within the innovation landscape across East Anglia and, of course, the rest of the country. What are the um, sectors or technologies you think are going to be needed, you know, in this post-pandemic era? Lou, as you said, you know, manufacturing end-to-end supply chain being necessary. Are there any others that you would you would put into that that you think we're going to be needing going forward? Talent you've mentioned as well. Yeah, uh, well, I think it's such an amazing playground, the east of England in particular, with respect to life sciences, the the basic research, trailblazing research. I don't want to use the word basic because it isn't, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, I think out towards the west of our county, so, you know, the, the Peterboroughs, um, etc., there are fantastic manufacturing opportunities. I think we need to make more of those and obviously we've got the the cell and gene therapy catapult you know europe's largest you know without ambitions to be the world's largest so you know we we really do have specialist therapeutic manufacturing potential yet world leading science all in our region and then you know, bioinformatics, data, whether that is interrogating your clinical samples for signatures of therapeutic response or not, the integration of data and healthcare, we don't have enough of those, the scientists. And again, we talked a bit earlier about that uber competitive job market. You know, how competitive can we be when salaries and salary expectations are high and higher than perhaps the salaries, the, the funding that is available without then perpetuating a, a sort of a brain drain? How can we attract that talent? And actually, we're running an event on Friday with the Association for British Health Tech Industries or ABHI over in Harlow at the ARU, Anglia Ruskin University Innovation Hub, um, for SMEs to actually discuss, talk through their their challenges from a a medical device regulatory perspective, but also what other challenges are there in a post-Brexit era. And I think, you know, that post-Brexit piece has certainly not helped the the skills gap, whether that is within the NHS itself, within universities, and and attracting talent from elsewhere to to the UK. Yes, it it seems to be a very uh, problematic area in recruiting and retaining talent at the moment across the UK and uh, variety of jobs. But the new jobs that you've talked about there, the bioinformaticians, um, computational analysis roles that we did not see heard of 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
where are those skills going to come from? Where are the next generation of those those types of skills coming through? And we're only just really understanding what those skills really are, what's really needed for the future to then look back and how do we triage the educational process or, or the university curricula to match? It's a real challenge and it's, it's difficult to unpack where the holy grail is, where the, the silver bullet is, because I didn't really think there is one. But everybody needs to work together on on trying to solve that. It's, yeah, incredibly challenging um, time, but exciting at the same time, as you said. Oh, absolutely. Let, let's go back to commercialising research. I can imagine that navigating the NHS healthcare system can be a really daunting prospect for an innovator. Uh, can you explain the routes available is there a best route for look and you know for those looking to have their technology adopted into the NHS? Could you just ex- explain what that term looks like? Yeah, so there's no one size fits all, sadly, and and again, I think that highlights probably the the breadth and the diversity that innovative programs and solutions bring. Anyway, if if there already was a tried and tested path for for some of these technologies, whether it's some of the digital technologies and it was a just tick this box and that that hospital will take you on or that integrated care system, as you said, will, will um, roll you out across that population serving about a million people. There are clear pathways if you are um, medical device and, and again, diagnostics. Again, some of that certification has had to change with Brexit. And that's, again, med tech innovations. That's part of the event that we're, we're running next week. So we've invited SMEs in that space from our geography to, to that event. Obviously, therapeutics, that is a very clearly laid out path. I think NICE, for example, National Institute for Health and, Health and Care Excellence, they are incredibly aware of how drug approvals, novel therapeutics, um, that that whole process can take a an ex, you know an extreme amount of time, and so there are some very innovative approaches, innovative pathway approaches to try and speed up that. Probably primarily led by sort of cancer therapeutics. You know, could there be a streamlined path so it no longer takes? 12 months, it perhaps takes three months to get that that approval through. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that sort of innovative, let's try and be, have quick decision making and, and that speed of, for therapeutics in other disease areas. And I think that will you know, su- support our UK competitiveness. But I think it also, you know, the last thing anybody wants is therapeutics made in or, you know, healthcare solutions made in this country. And then there isn't equitable access to those. And, you know, we the term postcode lottery, you know, gets gets sort of bandied about. And there were health significant health inequalities across the UK before COVID. COVID has amplified those in those extreme areas, but also everywhere else. And, you know, talking to leaders within the NHS, health inequalities is probably the number, well, it was stated to me um, a couple of months ago that that will remain 
our num the NHS's number one priority to address those health inequalities, and it will remain so probably for the for the foreseeable future, probably for my career anyway. That's great. Thank you. So can you expand upon what key areas a researcher or innovator needs to consider when they're developing a value proposition for the NHS? Sure. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll make a quick plug. And I know it's gone out across the um, Connect Health Tech portal. But just as a reminder for people, so we, we have a number of toolkits on our website and one is about developing your value proposition there's some really great sort of starter for 10 what you need to think about and there's also some very nice links there's some templates you know there are there is another toolkit around how you go about clinical research um, and what you might need to consider and who you might want to contact um, and there's also about building your business case now that would be when you've got your value proposition and you're now working perhaps with a, a hospital or some form of healthcare provider. But I, I think ultimately is the first question you need to ask yourself is, and be honest, be brutally honest with yourself. Does this innovation truly meet an unmet need or am I just kidding myself that it is meeting a, a need because somebody mentioned it a few months ago and the reason why I've mentioned pull and push earlier because you can be the loudest innovator that is shouting to your local hospital your local GP practice you have to take my technology but I tell you what if they do not see the value for their practice, for time saving, for efficiencies, and ultimately for their patient benefit, you haven't got the pull. Um, and I think the other piece that I would strongly encourage innovators, speak to patients, patient voices. They may be the patients with the condition you hope to address. It may be a group of, and there are national groups of innovation savvy individuals um, that want to understand and help you work through your technology or the glitches the warts and all and I, I think that patient co-creation co so you can get the clinical insight I think it's also it comes back to that honesty about your value proposition or you know the true unmet need but it's also be honest about the competition don't try and bury your head in the sand or omit to talking about the competitors because actually that can help you stand out from them by really being honest and developing your own USP. The last thing I want to do is to be putting an innovation in front of a system lead that might, you know, is interested, but we've only got half the story about the, the competition because invariably yeah as you say they'll have seen company x or y and say well how are you different um and yeah we we as a team will do our diligence around the competition and if an innovator is not truly honest with us then that that's a difficult one for us as well if it's if it's a genuine lack of education or understanding about it that's one thing we can address that if it's just downright dishonesty, then 
that's not great either. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've also I've heard the term that those with tech trying to get adopted, that they should speak NHS in their strategy planning. What does it mean, Lou, to speak NHS? And how is that beneficial to those looking to pitch into healthcare system stakeholders? I think part of that will be could be helped and addressed by your clinical champion or champions. They would certainly help with that. I think it's more about what I would encourage innovators to do if they've never engaged with the NHS but think they might like to is truly understand what the priorities are. So there was the NHS long-term plan which was published in early 2019 and set out the vision for the next 10 years. That has obviously, I think the digital element of that, let's say, has been accelerated by the pandemic. That's probably about the only good thing that has come out of, of the pandemic just have an understanding of what those priorities were. I think the other piece that is being focused on is something called Core 20 plus 5. And it is very much trying to address key um, disease areas such as cardiovascular disease, for example. It's not the only one. So it's five disease areas. And it's about the 20% of the the population that have the most severe of that and helping to address those diseases as well as the health inequalities. So I think all of the time the system and with the rollout or the um, you know the fact that integrated care systems will come into force from the 1st of July this year that they themselves are bedding in and working even across our region they're at different stages of maturity you know we're, we're sort of towards the end of May now and it is very much about joining up those local authorities the primary care the community the acute care and all of those system stakeholders to help um, prevent detect disease early and then treat appropriately, you know, appropriate referrals and treatment um, pathways. So I really do think there still will be differences in, in our region because there are different demographics and different rural, urban centres um, in our region. But I, I think it's it's starting to try and understand those we ourselves are trying to help the system in our region understand those as the integrated care systems, the integrated care boards all sort of slot into place and, and the individuals that are being recruited find their feet, bed in. Just touching on that that demographic bit there, um, Lou, in a previous interview, you highlighted that 85% of people born in East Anglia will likely stay in the region for the rest of their lives. And that feels like a really unique demographic. Can you briefly explain how that type of data, having that type of data can underpin research for better patient outcomes in the longer term? Yeah, well, I think it's a it's a hugely rich longitudinal data set. If that were could be mind or those individuals tracked over time in the context of a particular 
part treatment pathway or disease context or prevention approach. You know, these are all because, again, prevention is one of the many holy grails that we perhaps mentioned today. But, you know, having worked in companies before where we're looking at either early early interception of disease and things like that, you know, it it does come down to a how does this become financially viable for a company? You know, you've got such a long lead time to show that you have prevented X long-term condition. But if we can get that piece right and individuals empowered and taking ownership for their own health and, you know, again, Many of us might do that to a to an extent with our Fitbits, right? I've got up and walked this hour. I need to go and do something. You know, it's not just as simple as everybody wear a Fitbit or a you know an Apple Watch. But these technologies already can tell if you are going to, if you might be at risk of atrial fibrillation, for example. And therefore, right, can we flag that to your healthcare practitioner to you know, to explore that further, potentially put you on a treatment that will prevent you having a stroke so that you don't then have your own impaired um, body function. But that is also not then a drain, a financial um, and drain on the NHS. If you could have a chat with your younger self, at the start of your career journey, what advice would you give to the younger Lou? Yeah, I think I touched on it right at the start when I gave my long-winded answer about my career, is be open to every opportunity. Great. And what's the most important lesson you've learned to date? Oh, I think I've also referred to this before, never say never. If you could time travel, where would you go and when? Oh, the court of King Henry VIII. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yes. Fly on the wall then. Yes. <laughs> Nothing to do with immunology. <laughs> Better than any soap opera, I think. <laughs> oh, now, what's your favourite movie and why? Well, My Fair Lady. So partly because we did that as a musical at school when I was in lower sick, um, but I just absolutely love Audrey Hepburn. And then, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a classic, but Collateral. Yeah. Um, Tom Cruise. I just think that is just just how clever that film was. Yeah. No, that's a, it is a, that's a good one. That is a really good one. That Collateral and My Fair Lady. Good choices there, Lou. Good choices. And finally, what music discovery or rediscovery have you made over the past two years? That time we're in the pandemic, people are rediscovering in their music collections or, or discovering new stuff. What have you discovered or rediscovered? My default now is to go to my Apple Music and to go to probably any one of their playlists. And just, I mentioned that last couple of weeks I've been on holiday in, in well, it was, I was in Spain. And I was with my two of my nephews who are in their 20s. And I thought, if I put on my 80s nonsense, they're going to 
push me in the pool for being an old so-and-so. And so I just put on um, the Apple playlist. It's their Ibiza Essentials. And I got the biggest kudos from my 23-year-old nephew going, great tunes, banging tunes, Auntie Lou. So that was me. I didn't need I didn't need any bit any more beer or wine to sort of get me flying. I was I was like, yeah, I'm down with the kids. <laughs> so I think yeah, that tends to be a bit of my my sort of default. And if I'm trying to get in the zone with work, put the headphones in, play something like that at you know reasonable volume, and uh, yeah. Love it, love it. You can't be a good old Ibiza classic or Ayanapa, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so thank you very, very much for that, uh, Lou. Thank you for the, answering those quick fire questions. And thank you for being a part of the Joining the Dots podcast. It's and sharing your knowledge and experiences of commercialising research and getting innovation adoption into the NHS. It's been a fantastic story and conversation and i'm sure our listeners will get loads of tips from this so thank you so so much that's really appreciated you're welcome to find out more about connect health tech and join our conversations online go to our website at connect.cam.ac.uk forward slash health tech